church family, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Daniel chapter 11. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to jump right into the text because uh, it is a long chapter and we want to be able to uh, pay as much attention to it this morning as we can in the time that we have. As you do get settled, I quickly just want to draw your attention to something that is in the connector. I want this to be the only time I, I say this on a Sunday morning because really it's asking you to help me. As many of you know, I've been working for the last couple of years on getting a doctorate in this, in expository preaching, that is culminating with a sermon series for my doctoral project that I will preach here starting the week after Easter through Second Peter. And I need some test subjects. You have to be over 18 and you have to be willing to participate. That is the only requirement. So don't feel like, well, I don't have, actually, if you feel like you don't have very much Bible knowledge, that's probably more helpful than those of you who probably, you know, could get a doctorate on your own in some of this stuff. Okay. But it's helpful for anybody. If you'd like to participate, all you need, all you're going to be asked to do is to take a brief survey before and after and, and commit to watching or listening to being here for all eight sermons. Uh, through Second Peter. There's information about how you can volunteer in the connector, and it would, you would certainly be doing me a great favor because if I don't have people that volunteer for this, um, I'm not going to be able to conduct my project, and then I won't be able to graduate later this year, and that will be very disappointing. So uh, please, please very much help me, okay? With that said, I invite you now to, to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Uh, Daniel chapter 11 is very long, and so we are going to pick up in verse 36, and when we get through the text, you're going to understand why I'm picking up here with verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into, glorious into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites." He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become a ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and she shall go out with great fury and destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to your word, here in Daniel 11, we will explore both things past and things future. And I pray, Father, that we would have as much faith in what you have said would happen as we do as what will happen. Thank you, God for allowing us to see your hand in the rise and fall of empires and the controlling of history that will ultimately bring about the redemption of your people for all eternity, we pray. Even in the face of great tyrannical persecution, may your people endure. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In Daniel chapter 10, which we considered last week, we began 
to uh, what was the prologue of the final vision of the second half of Daniel. The second half of Daniel is divided into three parts, three different visions that Daniel receives from the Lord. Daniel 10 uh, is, is a vision that Daniel sees himself uh, as he sees the risen, or he sees the pre-incarnate Christ, not yet the risen Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus himself in all of his glory appears to Daniel and Daniel falls on his face as if he is dead, trembling before the Lord. A hand reaches out and touches Daniel. I believe the hand of Gabriel who has brought previous messages to Daniel from the Lord uh, gives Daniel the strength to rise in the presence of Jesus. And now after revealing some inner workings of spiritual warfare, which we considered last week, the vision proper begins. The vision does not end at the end of Daniel 11. You need to remember when you're reading your Bible, you need to remember when I'm preaching the Bible, that the chapters and verses are not inspired. They came much later, centuries later. And so there was great debate in myself this week about what I was actually going to set out to preach this week. First, it's a long chapter. I thought, well, where, what do I preach? Do I just preach down through 35 and then pick up at 36 where we read here in a moment? Or do I do what many preachers do and go all the way through the first few verses of chapter 12? I'll explain to you at the end uh, why I decided to stop right here. And we'll pick up with chapter 12 next week. But I think there is, a, there is a, a moment that we need to allow what happens in chapter 11 to sit on us. And there's a reason specifically during this Easter season that I wanted to sit on us exp longing to look at what we will see in chapter 12 next week. So I'm going to move quickly through the first 35 verses of this. I don't know. Me move quickly through 35 verses. So you've been coming here long enough to know I may not be telling the total truth there. I'm going to do my best to move quickly through the first 35 verses because it's a lot of detail. For Daniel, the first 35 verses are all in the future. For us, the first 35 verses are all in the past. These are all things that took place following the life of Daniel up through the guy that we saw uh, in Daniel chapter 8, Epi, uh, um, Antiochus Epiphanes, right? So all of this is looking at that period of time, a period of time that spans uh, roughly 300 years or so uh, as Israel is being rebuilt and conquered and reconquered or ruled and reruled by two different empires that will be referred to here as the Empire of the North and the Empire of the South. The first, we, we want to look, has, has been a primary theme here in the book of Daniel, that the Lord is in control of history, that the Lord is in control of the rise and fall of empires. And what has already been affirmed to us in places like Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, is still true here, that this is just a reaffirmation. In some cases, it's the fourth time we've been told this truth. In other cases, it's a more detailed look at what actually happens, as this is the most detailed of the visions that Daniel receives. So let's start with the unfolding of history. We considered verse 1 last week, because I really think verse 1 goes with Daniel chapter 10. So we're going to pick up in verse 2 today. And what we see in verse 2 is that there will be five Persian rulers that follow Cyrus the Great. Look at verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. So it's now time for Daniel to receive this final vision. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become the strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. So the first verse here of the vision tells us that there will be three kings that follow Cyrus the Great, and then a fourth. So a total of four Persian kings are in view uh, Cyrus the Great being the first, three that follow him, they're relatively unimportant for the vision. The fourth that arises is a wealthy king. We know him as Xerxes. Xerxes is the king in, even though he goes by a different name, it's the same king, the king in the book of Esther, which takes place during that period of time in the Persian Empire. Xerxes was the wealthiest of Persian kings. 
Xerxes is also, does also what is said here in chapter 2, that he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. Xerxes in 480 BC began an incursion of Greece with a mighty army. And he conquered much of Greece, but then ended up facing some, facing some hardship along the way. This is where Leonidas and his 300 Spartans play into history. That this is, the, there he meets a resistance and over the course of decades is eventually the Persians, even after Xerxes, are pushed back off Greece into Persia. Xerxes and the kings following him, his descendants, fail to fully conquer Greece. This is the silver chest. Persia is the silver chest of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 7, Persia is represented as the bear that devours in Daniel 7, 5. In Daniel 8, 4, Persia is the ram charging east and westward and northward and southward so that no nation could stop them. This is the ram that did as if did as he pleases and became great. And for generations, that was Persia. They were the greatest empire to that day. But because of that uh, incursion into Greece, they would eventually rile up the Greek people and one would come to lead them in 336 BC named Alexander the Great. And that's where we pick up in verse three. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. Now, this is what we have already seen to be true about Alexander the Great. Now, I'll remind you of this just quickly. Alexander the Great, young man in his 20s, conquers the known world in just a matter of years, destroys the Persian empire. In Daniel chapter two, it is the middle and thighs of Nebuchadnezzar's statue made out of bronze. In Daniel chapter seven, verse six, this is the leopard, the four-headed leopard with four wings of birds on its back saying how swift the conquest would be and the four-headed beast representing the four generals who would take over for Alexander the Great after he dies, a young man. In Daniel chapter 8, which is specifically about Persia and Greece, Alexander the Great is the, or Greece is the goat of Daniel chapter 8 with the broken great horn. And the four conspicuous horns that grow up out of his head are the four generals that take his place in verses 5 through 8. Now I recognize that I'm not reading everything that's for you on the screen or everything in your notes. We've read these, we've considered these already, but I wanted you to have them and you to be able to see them so we could see that the Bible once again is saying the same thing that it has already said. It is using different images. This time probably the most clear because it's actually instead of using beasts and rams and goats and statues, it's actually clear for us that it's talking about kings and kingdoms. So Alexander the Great comes in and, and destroys Persia. His life cut short. Four kings rule in his stead and Greece is then divided into four areas. Two of those areas become important for us in the way that in, in the majority of this text and I'll explain to you why. The two areas that become important for, the, for this text uh, is the areas known as uh, the Ptolemaic kingdom and the Seleucid kingdom. We're going to, for our, in, for our purposes, call them Egypt and Syria. Number one, because it's a whole lot easier for us to say. And number two, because we know where that is on the map. All right? So the, the scriptures refer to them as the southern and kings of the south and king of the north. King of the south is Egypt. Now, this is not Egypt as we know of Egypt today. This is not Egypt as we knew of Egypt earlier in the story of the Old Testament. But this is Greek rule in Egypt. That's very important. All of this is under Greece, this four divided kingdoms of Greece, which tend to fight with one another regularly, that there is an ongoing conflict between these kingdoms. Now, it's not just two kingdoms, the kingdom of, of Egypt and the kingdom of Syria. 
But there were four, and they actually regularly fought all amongst themselves. So why does the text only look at these two? Why are we only concerned with the Egyptian kingdom and the Syrian kingdom during this, what spans really to be about a 150-year period of time that's represented uh, in these 15 verses? Because in between the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, sits this little fledgling nation where people had been given permission to return and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple that we know of as Israel. And so sitting really on the borderland between Egypt and Syria, still today, (laughs) sitting on the borderland between Egypt and Syria, and yes, there are other nations that are now in play in modern, in modern times. In that time, those two nations, those two divisions of the, uh, of the Greek empire ran right up against each other in Israel. And so what the vision that Daniel is going to receive is a vision for Daniel's people in this part. It's about what's going to happen between the time of Alexander the Great's death And a period that has already been prophesied, the rise and persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes. So it's about a 150-year period between Cyrus the Great dying and that little horn of Daniel chapter 8 rising up. And what we get, probably the most detailed prophecy in all of Scripture, we get a detailed account of what's going to happen between these two kingdoms. Now, I, this is the part where I'm going, I you say, we've already kind of moved fast. This is the part I want to try to move quickly because this is historic. You can look this up. This is, scholars agree on this. There's very little disagreement on this middle section here uh, in, in Daniel chapter 11. And so I'm not going to tell you everything that every piece of this prophetic message meant, but here's what we need to know. All of this is history for us. All of it is future for Daniel but it plays out in incredible detail. So don't focus so much on the detail as much focus on the fact that God knows the details before they unfold. And he unfolds them in great detail to Daniel. So let's pick up in verse five. The king of the south, that's Egypt. Every time you hear south, think Egypt, okay? That's the uh, Ptolemaic kingdom. The king of the south shall be strong. But one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those Time. So verse 5 sets the scene between the king of the south, Egypt, the kingdom of the north, Syria. And between verses 5 and 6, there is a 75-year jump. So half the story is already told. See, we're already halfway there. Half the story is already told in verse, in verse 5, basically just setting the scene for what will take place. So between verses 5 and 6... We move from about 325 B.C. to about 250 B.C. And these two kingdoms establish themselves. But then in verse 6, there's a guy named Ptolemy II. Uh, And Ptolemy II, who is the southern king, gives his daughter Bernice in marriage to Antiochus II. Not the same Antiochus. We're going to see several Ptolemies and several Antiochus. I will tell you when we get to that last one, okay? Ptolemy II gives his daughter to his daughter Bernice to Antioch II for peace, to establish peace, but ultimately the peace fails. And that's what verse 6 tells us will happen. Now verse 7. And from a branch from her roots, meaning someone in her family line, shall arise in his place. And he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt the, uh, their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own power. So we fast forward into the next generation here where Ptolemy third, Bernice's brother, rises to power in Egypt and 
has some conquest into Syria to the point where he's able to take some riches out of Syria, take them back to Egypt, but strikes a peace agreement with Syria because he decides to attack one of the other kingdoms that's not mentioned here. And that's what verses seven, eight, and nine are telling will happen and unfolded over the course of history. So peace arises for a period of time between the two, uh, but the peace does not last. Look at verse 10. His sons, so we're in another generation, his sons shall wage war and an assembly, a multi, an assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hands. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands. But he shall not prevail, for the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. Verses 10 through 13 describe to us the war between Seleucus III and Antiochus III, both of which raise great armies. And they raise great armies and do great battle. Probably the greatest battle that takes place between these two kingdoms is described here in these verses. And one wins over the other, um, uh, Antiochus wins over Seleucus the, um, the third, but then Ptolemy the fourth, who replaces Seleucus the third in Egypt, raises another great army and wins great victory, but it is short-lived and a period of Syrian dominance begins. So the northern kingdom becomes dominant over the southern kingdom after these, these battles that take place uh, in verses 10 through 13. Now verse 14. In those times, many shall rise again against the king of the south, and the violence, uh, violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Now, just stop at 14 for just one moment. There's going to be many attempts to over... There were, because we're looking at it in the past. Daniel's looking at the future. Uh, the vision says there'll be many attempts to overthrow the king of the south, but he's going to be very strong. And there's even going to be... This is one of the only places Israel's mentioned in this section that there are going to be people from among your own people, the vision says. So this is referring to Israel who are going to try to aid in, in this battle. They're going to try to give themselves over to one side or another when they've been instructed by the Lord not to do this. They're not supposed to serve these foreign kings. Pick up in verse 15. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops for there shall... Uh, be no strength to stand, but he, will, but he who comes again, against him shall do as he wills and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. The glorious land is Israel. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall br uh, bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or, or be to his advantage. Afterwards, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his uh, insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then... He shall turn his face back towards the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So again, we're in Syrian dominance during this period of time. And the some in Egypt are trying to barter and, and give themselves over to Antiochus III. Syria further defeats Egypt, so much so that they basically force an agreement of vassal upon uh, upon Egypt, and the Syrian king gives his daughter to the Egyptian king, Ptolemy V at this point, hoping that through his daughter he will control all of that land. And that's what we see in verses 15, 16, and 17. But verse 18 begins is the beginning of the end for Antiochus III as he gets a little greedy and begins going towards the sea, we're told in verse 18. And across the sea is this new empire that is starting to rise called Rome. And Rome is having none of it. And they beat him back all the way back to his own fortresses, we're told, to the point where Antiochus the third in verse 19 dies in 187 BC at the hands of his own people. There is a revolt in the city after his great defeat to Rome and his people rise against him and kill him. Verse 20, 
Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But with a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Seleucus the fourth rises in the place of Antiochus the third. He was known as a taxer, and that's what for, like in history, this man was known as a taxer. He tried to rebuild the, the, his father's kingdom, which had, had suffered great defeat at the hands of Rome, by taxing people. And people don't like to be taxed, and they ultimately poisoned him, and he died, giving way to the rise of his brother, who may have been involved in his poisoning, Antiochus Epiphanes the one whom we have already seen will persecute greatly the nation of Israel during his reign. So the rise and terror of the first little horn. This is Daniel 21, this is verses 21 through 35. This begins to zoom in. So what we've seen is a 150 year period, okay? And I know I ran through it. Now what we see over the course of these next 15 verses is just a decade or so. Right, So it's zooming in on that same period of time that we've zoomed in on previously as we looked at Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel chapter 8. So pick up in verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. To whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and attain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and shall do what neither his father nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and good, goods. He shall devise plans against uh, strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with exceedingly great army, uh, great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same, time, at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed, and he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy, king, uh, holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. This is the little horn, and I, uh, in, that, in that main point, the rise and terror of the first little horn, this is the little horn of Daniel chapter 8 that arises out of those four broken horns that arose in the place of the one large one, right? We saw in Daniel 8 9, at one, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. In Daniel chapter 8, we see the, 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 a description of what we will see in the later verses here, the terror of Antiochus Epiphanes. What we have in these verses, 21 through 28, is a description of the politics of him, how he rises to power, and he does. He rises to great power. He desires conquest in Egypt. He gains victory and wealth. And then he bites off more than he can chew and Egypt beats, his ba beats him back and he returns home at the end of this passage, 27 and 28, he returns home defeated and angry and he takes his anger out on that fledgling little nation struggling between the two kingdoms. So we see Antiochus Epiphanes' terror against Israel. Look at 20, verse 29. At that time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. So see, he loses and he comes back. The Holy Covenant is Israel. He's going to take his vengeance out on them. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. He shall take away the regular burnt offering, as we've already seen him do in, in chapter 8. And they shall set up an abomination that makes desolate, which we already saw in, verse eight, in chapter 8. He shall uh, seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery 
And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end and it shall await the appointed time. Antiochus's second conquest in Egypt fails and he takes his wrath out on Israel. Uh, on Israel. I, I don't have time to explain everything that is here because I really want to get to this last section. If you weren't here when I preached Daniel chapter 8, I invite you, we have that sermon online. You can go and listen in detail about how uh, the angel in a previous vision unfolds the terror of Antiochus Epiphanes. Just know this, what's being described is his terror in Israel and the Maccabean revolt. This, this time where many in Israel give themselves over to another tyrant, but there is a select few who make wise. That's, what, that's what's being said here. They're, they're, they're able to make wise those who stumble. They're able to show that dedication to God, dedication to what the Lord had called Israel to be uh, was better than what any other nation could offer. And ultimately they are able to after a period of, of just over three years, uh, able to restore uh, worship in the temple. But Israel undergoes great uh, persecution. Some of the, probably the greatest persecution, at least during the intertestamental period time, between the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the time of Jesus, uh, this is the greatest persecution Israel would face until 70 AD when Titus ultimately destroys the city. So we see that in Daniel 8, 10 through 12. We're told of this little horn. It grew great even to the hosts of heaven and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even great as the prince of the host. And a regular burnt offering was taken away and the place of his sacrifice was overthrown and a host will be given over to it together with a regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw down to the ground and will act and prosper. This, this is another description of what happened. So I invite you to go back and watch that sermon in chapter 8, on chapter 8, as we look at that period. Now, we get to verse, to the end of verse 35, before we get to 36, what we read at the beginning. And here's what I'm going to argue for, and I believe the majority of Old Testament prophecy scholars and Daniel scholars argue for. And that is a hard break between 35 and 36. And I want to explain it in the same way that I explained uh, the end of Daniel chapter 9. There is an there a, a interpretive principle in prophecy known as telescoping. And I explained it in Daniel chapter 9 is this. If you look through a telescope with one eye, right, things start to come together. And so if you look at one uh, object in the distance and another object in the further distance, both through the same telescope lens, there are times that those two objects will look almost exactly alike. But when you walk up to one, you realize the next one was much further away than it looked. I believe that's what's happening here in Daniel chapter 11. So for those of you who I've just been teasing with little hints of the future in places like Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, and you've been wondering, when do we get to our future? Well, here it is. This is talking about times yet to come. This is specifically going to be talking about the rise and terror of the last little horn. Not of the prototype little horn of Daniel 8, Antiochus Epiphanes, but of the last little horn, the man of lawlessness, the final antichrist, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. So, Daniel 5 and 6, if you write in your Bibles, you may just want to draw a line. Be like, there's a hard break. Because everything from Daniel 35 earlier has already happened. Everything from Daniel 36 on is yet to have happened. At least, maybe it's happening right now. I don't, I, 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 I'm just give you 30 seconds on this. It's difficult to know. It's easy for me to go through what has happened and show you along the way. It's really difficult to do the same thing for future events. When we get through the future events, we're going to look back on the last half of Daniel 11, I believe this, and go, oh, this was this, and this was this, and this was this, and this was this. Some of us may be like those wise men in the day of Antiochus Epiphanes who were able to help other people see. But it's difficult. Prophecy is intended to be, it's difficult. It's imagery, right? It's apocalyptic literature. It's all imagery for us. So even though it's in detail... We need to recognize that it may not unfold exactly like we think, but it will unfold exactly like the vision intended for it to unfold. So verse 36, and the king, this is the Antichrist, 
the, the final little horn. The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not, he shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the gods of the fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts, he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many, and he shall divide the lands for a price. Now, before I explain that to you, just quickly go to Daniel chapter 7, where these beasts, uh, Daniel is seeing these four beasts, right, rise up out of the sea. And in the one that represents Rome, there's kind of this break again. It's telescoping, looking into the future. And he says in Daniel 7, 8, I consider the horns, and behold, there came among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And when I preached that, I said, We're going to get to who this guy is, but this is looking in the future. This is likely the, the final Antichrist, and that's who's being described here at the end of Daniel 11. This is the Antichrist of the end of the age. Verse 37 tells us that he will not be a man that worships any known gods. He will not be a man first that worships false gods, we're told. In verse, in, sorry, in verse 36, he will, he will not worship uh, false gods, but he will also not, he'll pay no attention to the gods of his father. So whatever place he comes up in, he won't, he won't be of that religion. He won't be of any known religion or to the one beloved by women. Now, scholars disagree on what the one beloved by women means. I'm more convinced than not that it is talking about Jesus because in Daniel's day, women prayed. There was actually a prayer that women would pray. Hebrew women would pray to be the mother of the Messiah, that it was a desire that they would ask God to be the mother of the, of, of the Messiah. And so I think that's who he's saying, that this is not one who's going to serve uh, false gods and this is not one who's going to serve Jesus, the true Messiah. In verse 38, we're told who his God will be. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God who his fathers did not know, he shall honor with silver and gold. Verse 38 is telling us that this guy actually doesn't have a God. His God is war and conquest. That's what the God of fortresses mean. That this, is, that this, this guy will serve conquest. That his goal will be international conquest. It will be global dominance. Now, what we're going to see later in the text is he doesn't always achieve the global dominance, that he's not always able to do everything that he wants to do, but he's going to achieve much of it. And one of the reasons he's going to achieve much of it is because what verse 39 tells us, that many will flock to him. Many will come to him and load him with honor, and he will make them rulers over many and divide the land to the highest bidder. That... that World leaders are going to give themselves over to this guy and say, lead us here. You're going to see entire nations turn themselves over. I think you look at it through the lens, particularly the lens of wealth here, you're going to see billion and trillion dollar corporations giving themselves over to this man's leadership. That's the picture that's painted for us of this final little horn in the rise of the Antichrist. But just as we saw the rise of Antiochus and his terror Mirrored in that is not only the rise of the final little horn, the worldwide terror. Look at verse 40. At that time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through, and he shall come into the glorious land, again, Israel, and then shall fall, but there shall be delivered out of his hand Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow his, his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and, de and, de and destroy and de devote uh, many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end 
with none to help him. Now there's again some question over the king of the south and the king of the north. These are obvious, these are events that have not yet happened. So we don't know who this is. I think the best description is the king of the south in these verses is a confederation of nations that come together finally eyes opened and see wait this guy is exerting worldwide dominance the king of the north i some believe is a separate entity i believe is actually the army of the antichrist i think that's the best grammatically the best way to read the passage is that he is the king of the north and that the king of the north comes into the land of israel in between what is described here as the holy the Mediterranean Sea and, and Jerusalem. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tip my eschatological hand for a minute and say something that some of you are going to disagree with, and, it, and it's fine. I don't think Israel as a nation needs to exist for this to take place. The sea and the holy mountain are there whether a nation known as Israel are in that place or not. Now, I know some of you have eschatological systems built around the nation of Israel. It's fine. I personally don't. It's a geographical location. It's known in Hebrew as the Valley of Megiddo. It's known in Latin as the Valley of Armageddon. It is a flat plain on which for millennia nations have fought against nations. I stood in this valley just a month ago. And this will be a place we are told that he will come, the Antichrist will come with his army and camp there. He will deal great destruction around the world. He will devote many to destruction. And he will destroy many. Now, this is the question that I want to answer for the rest of this time. Because again, this is looking forward, so it's hard for me to say exactly what I know where in between the sea and the holy mountain is. I think I know what the king of the south at least represents but I want to answer a question for us that I, that I have been coy with up until this point. And one again that I believe is a third order doctrine, meaning if you disagree with me, we can still go to the same church and all be okay. All right? Much of Daniel, the last half of Daniel has been about that. And I'm going to introduce another point. Are you ready? And that is this question. Are we, assuming we are alive and we are the followers of Jesus, are we here for this? or not? Here's my answer. I believe we are. I believe that we are here until Jesus returns to destroy the Antichrist. That position is known as historic premillennialism or post-tribulation rapture. Basically what I'm saying is I don't believe there is escape for the church from this. And let me show you why. The destruction, the the the, um, the, the destruction and, and the great fury, I believe, is against the church. I believe it is a worldwide phenomenon. It is something many will experience, but I believe the church will experience it. Here's why. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, talking about this little horn. Notice what he says. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And shall think to change the time and the law, and they shall be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. I believe what's being described in Daniel 7, 25 is the terror of the final little horn, the Antichrist. And who are the saints of God? We are. The end of Daniel chapter 9, the very, very end of that, describing this same person. And on the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate until the end is decreed and poured out on the desolator. That we will experience this desolation. There will be a period of worldwide persecution of God's church. I believe this is what's being pictured for us in Revelation 13. That the beast of Revelation 13 is this king of the end of Daniel 11 and is the little horn that is to come. In, Dan in Revelation 13 we read, And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. The dragon is Satan. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is the beast? Who can fight against him? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Does this sound familiar? It sounds exactly like what we've read. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So for a limited period of time, God's in control. Don't get all hung up on the numbers. God's in control. It's a limited period of time. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on who? 
on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has been written before the foundation. uh, uh, Sorry, I want to make sure I get that word right. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. In the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If we're, not, if, if we're not here, then we're not here to fulfill verse 8. And who are the saints that he's talking about in verse 7? Surely you could make an argument that in Daniel 11 or in Daniel 7, the saints would have been uh, Israel. But I don't think you can make that argument from John's perspective. Because from John's perspective, the saints are the, the, the believers in Jesus. That this is who will be persecuted by the Antichrist. All, the whole world will worship him, except those whose name have been written in the book of, of in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Only those who are in Christ will see this man for who he is. Jesus describes this period of time in Matthew 24. He says, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And in, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Who are the elect? It's the church of God. It's the people of God. And God limits this period of persecution at the very end for the sake of his beloved church. Now, let me explain why I'm stopping here and not going on. Because at the end of, verse, at the end of chapter 11, we get this one verse. Right Where he shall pitch his palatial tents, we're told at the beginning of that verse, and then at the end. He shall come to his end with none to help him. Now that end is going to be described in the next few verses. But here's what I want to sit on us for a minute. Because we are going into this three-week period before Easter. We're going to start today. We've already started today praying together before Easter. And I believe stopping here at the end of 11 is an Easter moment. This is a Good Friday moment for us where we can allow just for a moment the weight of what is to come on God's church to sit on us, the darkness of the tomb, knowing this, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now, next week, it'll be like an Easter moment (laughs) because next week is going to focus not only on his destruction, but on the resurrection of the righteous. But we need to allow, instead of running to that, let's just allow the weight of persecution to set on us. So I ask our point of application. All right, so what? The people of God are called to practice faith and endurance in the face of tyrannical persecution. This, I believe, is the point of Daniel 11. God has been in control of all of history down to these minute details of the king of the north and the king of the south. And that should give us courage to persevere, courage to endure, courage to practice our faith, no matter what the kings of this world tell us about our faith. We do not give in. We don't take a step back. We say, no, this is what God expects of us. And we won't sell out, no matter what you can do to us. If we go back into Revelation 13 for a minute, where we've seen this great beast and he's ravaging the saints of God, listen to how John ends that part of the vision. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. This is waking us up, church. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. So if they start putting us in jail, they start putting us in jail. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword must he be slain. If they start killing us for practicing Christianity according to the way the scriptures has dictated to us, if we go to the sword, we go to the sword. It doesn't stop there. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. I recognize this is a heavy moment. Because let's just be honest, in our culture, we have not experienced this kind of, we've not experienced anything close to this kind of persecution. Saints throughout the ages have. Some saints today 
in other parts of the world are currently facing it. What I believe is being described in Daniel 11 and Revelation 13 is a future persecution. A persecution that is, yes, now for some people, but it is likely not yet for many of us. And when that not yet moment comes, maybe we, may we be those who say, if you want to imprison me, imprison me. If you want to kill me, kill me. But I will endure. Amen. Let that be our cry. I remember growing up afraid of the tribulation. <laughs> I grew up in the 80s when everybody wanted to talk about tribulation all the time. There were movies, VHS cassettes, whole series of books. There's all this stuff, right, in, in, my, in the 80s and 90s. I, I can remember being afraid of it. I'm not afraid of this. Even as somebody, some of you are like, well, I'm not afraid of it because I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. That's fine. Just hear me out. <laughs> I think <laughs> we can talk about that. As somebody that does not believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, I'm not afraid of this. Not at all. Because who's the one that gives us the strength to endure? Who's the one that gives us faith? Who is the one that promises to be with his saints? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who is the one who will do what Daniel 11.45 says shall bring the end to this persecutor? I'm not worried about imprisonment. I'm not worried about sword. My eyes are fixed on what Daniel's eyes as he receives this vision are still fixed on. Daniel 10, the glorious Jesus. So yes, the weight is heavy, but our future is secure. The weight of the burden of possible future persecution and current persecution for some believers is certainly a burden, but it is a burden that Jesus carries with you, calling us, calling his saints to endure in faith. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Thank you, Lord, that you give us the faith to endure all persecution. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again, once again, week after week, in our series in Daniel, that you control the nations, that history is already written by you, and it unfolds according to your glorious providence in our world. Thank you, God, that we can, that our faith can be made sure as we look back on events that have already happened, prophesied in Daniel 11. Let that give, increase our faith as we look to a day, possibly soon, possibly still yet hundreds or thousands of years into the future, where one final persecution will rise and yet your people will endure. Father, if it is in our day, let us endure. If another little horn that is still just a prototype like Antiochus arises in our day, let us endure. Let your people, your saints of faith, endure in you, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit working in our lives and our church. In Jesus' name, amen.